this morning Grace Station. We always try to keep this in front of the rest of us. What, what is Grace Station learning? This isn't a job again. It's not a job just for our teachers. It's not a job just for the parents. All of us together are required, expected by God to train up these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And one of the ways that we do that in Grace Station is we go through the New City Catechism. This morning we're asking the question of the children, did God create us unable to keep his law? Did God create us unable to keep his law? This is an incredible question. Some of you may have already intuitively thought of this question. Wait a minute, if God requires us to keep his law, but we can't keep his law, did he create us in that way, unable to do such a thing that he required of us? Well, the answer is this. No, because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. When we think of human nature, we, we often think of it as intrinsically sinful. And I want to challenge that. I want to challenge that idea to say to, uh, to, uh, to err is human and to forgive is divine. It sounds poetic. It is. It's not actually true. If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, added to himself a human nature, did he become sinful in that moment as he added a sinful or as a human nature to himself? Of course not. And so we can't rightly say human nature always is sinful. The Bible teaches that at creation, man was in a state of sinlessness. Adam was able to keep God's law, but he chose to disobey. And that plunged himself and all of posterity into a fallen, sinful state marked by bondage and death. And really, that's where we find ourselves this morning as we look at Romans. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Looking at this idea... Of God creating us able to keep his law, but man falling into sin and being trapped in bondage. There's a song that I remember and loved to sing as a kid. If you know it, you can say it with me or maybe try to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Not by myself. That's why I love congregational singing. It goes like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. What a beautiful truth that we hear in that song. What a glass of cold water to a thirsty, parched group of people. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Where sin abounds, where sin thrives, where sin multiplies, where it grows, where it increases, grace does even more. Grace is great. It's greater than all of our sin. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned something along those lines. I believe this song, this hymn that we just reminded ourselves of, was probably inspired by Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, he's a good teacher, and good teachers allow for questions, and even better teachers anticipate questions. And they go ahead and answer them. 
Paul was unable, he was able to anticipate this particular question, and it goes like this. If grace will always be greater than our sin, should we continue in sin so that grace could abound? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? The Apostle Paul answers that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And he does so a bit violently, but I won't do that this morning. I'll read it gen- kindly. And, but he has definitely a strong opinion about this. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were actually baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no Longer or death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do this every week. We open your word, we read it, And we ask that you bless that. Father, your word is life. Father, today we need life. Would you give it to us through your word? We ask it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. How did we get from greater sin equals greater grace? How did we get from there to the main idea today? We find ourselves still working through the covenant series. And so if you have your copy of the black, the black Bible right in front of you, you can turn to the back and there's probably going to be a Hagerstown Church covenant sheet in there. If you look down toward the, the bottom there, that last bullet point, it will be on the screen for you now. The main idea for today, it's the, the uh, is that the seventh? Can I count here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hmm? You didn't know I could count. The seventh bullet point. How did we get from greater sin equals greater grace to this idea here which says, we will seek by God's grace to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, 
remembering that since we have been buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. This bullet point says clearly, we have an obligation as those who are in Christ to live carefully in the world, to deny all forms of ungodliness, to avoid worldly lust, and to lead a new and holy life. How do we get that out of greater sin equals greater grace? Or the greater the sin, the greater the grace. There seems to be a little bit of a confusion here. And so the Apostle Paul here in chapter 6, he asks a question. tries to answer the question, or he doesn't try, but he does. But before he actually answers the question, he offers a principle. And then he gives the answer. And then he reveals a path. These four things we're going to work through this morning, these four steps, a question raised, a principle offered, an answer given, and a path revealed. And it will help us to understand how did we get from the more we sin, the more grace there is. So why don't we just continue sinning? How do we get from there to recognizing there is a special obligation on us now to lead a new and holy life? That first section, though, a question raised. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We've already talked about this a little bit, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper. Last week we looked at this idea that Romans could be broken up into four sections. The first, first big section of Romans is kind of this idea that righteousness is needed. All of us are sinful and all of us need the, the righteousness of God which has been provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And there at the end of that second section is where we find ourselves today. We've been given, we've been provided this source of justification through Jesus Christ. We access it by faith in Jesus not by works. We look to Jesus and we say, we are sinful and you are holy. And we ask him by faith to take our sinfulness upon himself and to give us his righteousness, which when we ask, he is so gracious to give. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read that Christ died for us. And in that, God demonstrated his love for us. And it's free, and it's greater than our sin, that grace is. And so Paul says, does it really matter how much sin we actually incur? Imagine discovering at the cashier desk as you're checking out, paying for your bill there at lunch, that someone has determined to pay your lunch bill, and they want to pay all of it. Would it be acceptable to go ahead and grab some extra things off the counter there as well? Stuff those in your pockets, fill your arm full and, and race out. Well, this was a real concern for the Jews of, G, of Paul's day. And it makes sense, right? If salvation is accessed through faith in Jesus, that's it. Doesn't that mean that anything goes? Doesn't that mean that you can just be licentious and, and you can receive grace and continue sinning? There's actually been theologians, quote unquote, throughout the centuries that would say things like that. The more grace that God gives means he has more glory. And so if you want God to get more glory because he's exercised and given more grace, then you should sin more. This was a fear that the Jews had. 
There's another group here that I want to point out to you, and they're the, the antinomians. These aren't people that are against like those little garden things that you put in your, in your, in your yard. I'll teach you a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of Greek here. I don't, I'm not some sort of an expert, but if you break down antinomianism, it's this idea, it's this ism, right, that's against the law or instead of the law. Anti meaning against or instead of, in place of, and nomos meaning law. And so the antinomians would say, hey, it doesn't really matter. There really is no law. Continue to sin. Do whatever you want to do. God's grace will cover you. And so you've got these two groups that are like, yeah, one says, yeah, continue in sin that grace may abound. We're just trying to bring God glory. And the other group says, hey, this can't be right. We've got to, we've got to do a little bit of work. We've got, to, we've got to earn it just a little bit. So when Paul says grace abounds, one group cheers and one group winces. And so they ask the question. They're asking the question, is it okay if I sin? Is it okay if I continue to do this, that grace may abound? That grace may abound? The other group, this can't be right. How in the world can we continue in sin, that grace may abound? We've got to do something to earn it. Paul sees that a theological foundation has to be laid before he actually answers this question, or at least in support of the question. This is how I'm laying it out there. In verse 3 of chapter 6, Scriptures say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. So we have a question that's been answered, and then Paul begins to offer us a principle. And to help us understand the principle that he's given us, he gives us a picture. He points to a picture, and I want you to bear in mind that the picture is not the principle. Say that with me. The picture is not the principle. The illustration is not the idea. It just helps us to understand the idea. It assists us. And so what is that picture? The picture is baptism. It's a principle that the Apostle Paul thinks we need to understand. And surely we do. And so he points to baptism. Now baptism pictures death. It pictures the burial. It pictures the resurrection of Jesus. And it does all of these things beautifully. Because Jesus was baptized, we are baptized. You identify with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And that's what Paul's pointing to right now. We go under the water. Why? Because Jesus died and was buried under the water. He was dead. And three days later, he came back from the dead. He resurrected. When we are participate in baptism, we're preaching that. And we're identified to have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. He's not actually saying because you were baptized, you were baptized into Jesus' death. Because you got wet, now you identify with Jesus and you are actually unified with Jesus. That's not what he's actually saying. The word translated as baptized doesn't automatically mean water baptism. It doesn't automatically mean underwater now, when we see baptism, we think, as good Baptists should, that we're talking about water immersion. Taking people and putting them underwater, not for long, bringing them back out. But baptism, or baptized in the scriptures, doesn't always mean water baptism. It simply means immersed. 
It means to be placed under, generally for the purpose of washing. To place under. But here, water is not the context. What is the context? Well, I should actually say, who is the context? The context is Jesus. We have been immersed into Jesus. We have been immersed into his death. We've been immersed into Jesus, the one who was immersed into the ground. So Paul points to baptism and says, hey, our baptism symbolizes what Jesus went through. And when we are baptized into Jesus, when we're immersed into Jesus, we're truly, or when we are we immersed into water, we're picturing being immersed actually, actually into Jesus, which is a spiritual account. And because we Christians were united with Christ when he died, the Apostle Paul is saying we died with him. We were immersed into Jesus. When he died, we died. And he goes on to teach us that when Jesus rose, we rose with him. In some mystical way, we have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so water baptism is a vivid physical illustration of a greater spiritual reality. In other words, it's not water baptism that actually unites us with Jesus Christ, but water baptism does illustrate that we have been united with Christ. So what exactly is, is being pictured by water baptism? What is the truth or reality? Here's the principle. Here's the principle. The principle that's been offered. Christians have been united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Christians have been united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. I just want to pause the sermon just for a second. As we look at a text like this, I know there's so many of us here, I know myself included, that are looking at the word of God and we're saying, hey, I need help. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Temptations all around, heart prone to wander. Who's going to save me? Jesus, give me something here from your word today. And then there's this truth. Christians have been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's, that's the answer? There's got to be something more maybe you're saying this morning. Well, hang on. Hang on. Christians have been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And this is an incredible truth. It truly is life changing. We've been united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection death. Verse 4, it says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried, therefore, with him by immersion into death. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, totally destroyed, so that we, could, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set Free from sin. Christian, Jesus' death paid the debt of sin that you owed. And we know that. This is the easy part of this truth. This is the part that we know on its face that our debt has been canceled because we were crucified with him. In his death, he defeated our sin. He satisfied the righteous demands of the law, all the ordinances that I broke, all the ordinances that you broke, your long list of sins along with mine, Christian, they were nailed to Jesus' cross. And because you are united with him, you also were nailed to his cross. 
There, the old person whose heart was bent towards sin, that old person who had a heart of stone, he died. The sin that he had was paid for, and that old self died. We know that. But that's not all that's happening. That's not all that's happening. And this is really, really important. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died for our sinfulness. What do you mean? Well, he didn't just die for our sin legally bearing our guilt. He died to kill our sin. The sin that so easily besets us. Our dead, corrupt, fallen nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. Christian, your old man, he died. He received the curse of God along with Jesus Christ on Calvary. He's dead. Your sins are paid for. We know that. The old man died as well. And notice the word burial. Buried with him in baptism. Who do you bury? That's a silly question. The kids have left this morning. I think it's important for us to, to think about that. Who do we bury? What sort of people? People who have died. And so, if we have been buried, what does that mean of us? We have died. Why was Jesus buried? It was proof of his death. Jesus didn't really die, some critics may say. Well, then why was he buried? If he died and was buried, that's proof. If we were buried, then we died. That Jesus was really in the, the ground proves that he truly did give up his life on Calvary. And that you died with him means that your old man is dead, which is what Paul is telling us here. And you may say, but pastor, I'm still alive, can't you see? And that is true, but the scriptures teach us that spiritually speaking, your old man died and you are in fact a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old man is dead. There's a new creation. So you're not only united with Jesus in his death, but you are a new creation. You were united in his resurrection life also. So we looked at united with Jesus in his death. Now let's just briefly look at his united with him in life. By the way, death always precedes resurrection. He died, the old man died, and now there's a resurrection. We have been, we have been buried with him and we have been raised with him. Verse 8 says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The reality is that we did die but also that we are no longer dead, but we are alive in him. We are walking around, walking about, living with this newness of life, this new realm of life, as it were. There was an old life, an old way, an old list of activities, and they were bound to us. We were bound to them. We were enslaved. But in our newness of life, we are no longer bound to them. Praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
That's not an exhaustive list. Scriptures go on to say, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Consider also Galatians chapter 5, which gives us two vivid lists. Lists of the old man and lists of the new man. One that operates under the flesh and one who operates in the spirit. Galatians 5 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the old man, you could say, they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In contrast, though, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. And the scriptures go on to say that against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have, listen, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've died. The old man has died. And the new creature has arisen. And they live by the spirit. But it's also keeping step with the spirit, the scriptures say. And so here's the principle. Christians have been united with Jesus in his death. Listen, past tense. Christian, you have been united with Jesus in his death. The old man is dead, and you have a new life because of the resurrection. You were raised with Jesus. And that's not only a picture, it is a reality. It's a reality. You say, well, I don't, I don't always believe that. It doesn't change the fact that you are a new creation. While sometimes I struggle, it doesn't change the fact that you are a new creation. It's a reality, Christian. And so what does all this mean? What does that principle, how does that apply to the answer? How does it give us the answer? Well, let's look. And there's the answer given. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he gives the question and he answers it immediately. And the answer is no. Well, it's actually a lot more substantial of an answer than that. Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. Other translations say, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Apostle Paul says, here's the answer. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? To the antinomians and the Jews struggling with this, confused, the answer is no. By no means. God forbid. The Apostle Paul establishes us for us this morning that it's not only illogical to think such a thing, but it's also impossible. He says, we have newness of life. Our lives have been changed. And really, it's ridiculous to think that someone could actually be in Christ but not be changed and empowered to live a holy life. We've heard this idea maybe of lordship salvation and the importance of it. To think that Jesus can be your Savior, but not yet your Lord. It's unbiblical. To think that you could turn to him and somehow receive salvation, but him not make you a new creation. 
It's ridiculous. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear. Maybe you remember when you were a kid. I know I used to do this all the time. We would try to play dead. You know, try to just, just kind of keep your mom's heart healthy. And you'd lay real still. Maybe you'd even get ketchup. Or maybe you're just trying to, to change, the, you know, the, to, to scare your, your, your sister or your brother. Or maybe you're kind of just doing some uh, role playing here. And you're like, hey, I'm going to be a cop and you're going to be a robber. And we're going to do a, you know, we're going to try to get each other here. And then I'll just, possible for somebody who's truly alive to play dead. And to really be convincing. Why? Because there are some doctors who, and just some wise people who know how to use Google, and they'll just go up and they'll check your pulse, and, and maybe even they don't even have to do that if their eyesight's not completely lost. They'll just look at your chest and see it. <gasps> As you're tra- trying to sit still, you know how it goes. You sit there and you, you got your eyes closed. It doesn't work. Somebody that's truly alive can't really be dead if they're alive. How can somebody in slavery be released from bondage and yet not be changed? The biggest change we will ever go through in this life takes place when we are reborn. By the way, when we are reborn, spiritually speaking, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John 3, it's not a work that you do. It's a work that is done to you. We've changed form. Spiritual death has changed to spiritual life. We've gone from bondage to freedom. Maybe it'll be on the screen for you. I'm not sure if it will be or not. There's a paragraph in the Second London Baptist Confession in regards to justification that I think would be really helpful for you to see. Is it up there? Survey says. No. (laughs) It got inserted after the build, so never mind. You're just going to have to follow along with me. And it's too big to probably write down. But here it is. I'll highlight the big piece of it that I want you to get. Second London Baptist Confession, in the section of justification, paragraph 2, says this. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. So how do we receive justification? How do we access that? How do we rest on Christ and receive his righteousness? Faith. That's it. That's the alone instrument, faith. Yet, this is important, yet faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. Faith alone saves, but faith is not alone, the scriptures teach us. Faith alone saves, but faith is not alone. Faith is accompanied by works. You say, are you saved by works? Absolutely not. Nothing could be farther from the truth. What are you saved by? By grace through faith. And not that of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And yet, if that gift has been given to you, if you've experienced the new birth, there will be change. There will be works that accompany that faith. If your understanding of the gospel means that you can sin so that grace can abound, you truly don't understand the gospel. You don't understand how it is that we are reborn into Christ. And how spiritually speaking, we are baptized, we're immersed into Christ. There will be a change. New life will bring change. And while all this is true... Maybe you're still thinking, like the Apostle Paul, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? 
from the strongest of us to the weakest, we are still unable to fulfill this portion of the covenant fully, which says we will seek by God's grace to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldliness, lusts, remembering that since we have been buried by baptism and, and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us now a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. And you're saying maybe with me this morning, how do we do that? How do we live this new and holy life? The first thing I would say is this, to ask yourself, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? How does one become in Christ? We've mentioned it several times. We've talked about it and danced around it for a little bit, but the idea is this. You have to turn from your sins. You have to be able to see your sins. And by the way, the scriptures talk about sin being bondage, that sin is like death, but it's also like blindness. If we're to be delivered from bondage, if, we are going, if we're to be to, to brought from death to life, if we're going to go from blind to seeing, it has to be through the work of God. And so we have to be able to see our sin in the way that God has revealed it to us and by faith look to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And if that's you, the scriptures say if you call out to Jesus for forgiveness for your sins, that immediately you are justified. That immediately, spiritually speaking, you're immersed into Jesus Christ. And all of your sin is then nailed to his cross. And all of his life is now flowing through you. And you too will now be empowered to live a new life. Now that we're all on the same page, right? How do we go about living that new and holy life? Well, the scriptures give us a path, a path. Maybe you're like me, you're like, okay, we've got through all this other stuff, this high stuff that's really difficult to understand and really impossible almost to imply. What are the, the handles that I can take this week and actually apply to my life? Because I, I want to fulfill the covenant and I, and I want to demonstrate that I really do have this faith and, and it's, it's accompanied by love. And so how do we do this? Well, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think gives us four things to look at. Look at verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members as God, to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The first of the four points for you to consider this morning is this. Consider yourselves in Christ. Consider yourselves in Christ. There's a clearly established fact in this passage, one that, that Paul really uses as a launching point and doesn't work to establish any further than it already has been. And he assumes that all of his readers are just going to believe that this one thing is true, and so he works from there to these other things. And what is it? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He works from there. Verse 9, we, we know that Christ died, was raised, and will never die again. We know this. He just takes for granted that you know that. If you're a Christian, that's, you, you got to know that. you got to believe that, right, that Jesus died and that he was raised and that he'll never die again. That's a fact. And Paul doesn't think you're going to argue with him, and I hope you're not, right? It's a fact. Did I say it's a fact? But he points to this incredible truth of history and he draws a parallel or he, he draws a conclusion to that, from that point. And he says, our victory over sin will be enjoyed when we consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. He 
because we have been dead and now are alive and we are immersed into Jesus. The Apostle Paul is saying, when Jesus died, I died. As Jesus lives, I live. If Christ died for you, if Christ died, I should say, he died also, or you died also, I should say. If he was raised, you were also raised. There's no bodily resurrection of Jesus, then there's no victory over sin. If there's no union with Jesus, there's no new life for you now. You could flip those two statements, those two axioms, you could flip them. If there's no victory over sin, then you're not united with Christ. If there's not victory in some sense, now there's still work to be done. In a sense, because we work to believe this, but really, we can't add anything to this. It's a reality that we just acquiesce to. It's something that occurred in space-time. So when we come to passages like Romans, we, we want to just skip over these high and lofty ideas that we have been used with Christ. I just want to know, how do I stop doing these things? We want to just jump to these principles here. And really the first thing that Paul says, hey, if you, uh, for all those who skip chapters 1 through whatever, and you just want to get to these you know, bullet points, action steps, he's like, go back and read all the other ones. That's action step number one. You can't fly past these theological principles such as you are dead or you died with Christ and you've been raised with him. This is the application point. Consider, consider that you are dead. Your old man has died. And you have new life in Christ. And really just flowing out of considering is the second point that he brings up. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Twice that kind of phraseology is used, right? In verse 12 and in verse 14. It's a very similar statement. In verse 12 it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. And then in verse 14 it says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. It's interesting, chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 12, that's an imperative. You are not to let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let it occur. Do not let it make you obey its passions. Why? Because verse 14 is true. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin will not reign over you. This is an indicative. This is a statement of fact. It's not saying, hey, you, you, you don't let dominion, sin have dominion over you. It's saying it won't have dominion over you. If you are a, in Christ, you are a new creation. Sin does not have dominion over you. You're not under the law. You're under grace. It's a promise. Original sin is described, I already alluded to this, as with, with several basic metaphors in the New Testament. And the two of the most popular ones are of death and the second Bondage and bondage is the I'm sorry, death is the idea that that uh, Paul has been using, but now he also kind of uh, slips over into slavery and bondage. Now at the end of this section that we're looking at, we are by nature in bondage to sin. We we looked at that at the very beginning of our time this morning. Adam, in a sense, sold us into slavery. In our death, though, our death in Christ, we were set free from slavery. And now we have died to sin. Sin has not died to us, and that's really important for you to notice. Some of you say, well, I still feel like sin's alive and well. That's because it is. Sin is alive and well. It doesn't say that sin died to you. It says that you died to sin. That chain still tries to catch you, but it's been broken off of your wrists. 
We, we bring a lot of baggage into the Christian life. We, we bring sinful patterns and thought ideas into, our, in, in, into this Christian life. And, and truly, they do not, all of them, disappear overnight. But what does disappear is the bondage that holds us down. Now we have the responsibility to cooperate with the grace that God makes available to us. The freedom from sin. And so it follows really in verse 13, this third step that we take. Do not present your members as sins or to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I'm not a soldier. I always wanted to be, but I, I wasn't. One of, the, one of the things that they say in, in many of the branches is something to the effect of once a soldier, always a soldier. It makes sense, at least in some, in some sense of the, of, the, of the phrase. But what's not being said there is once reporting for duty, always reporting for duty, right? Our death in Jesus is, is like not having to report for drill every morning just like you used to. There comes a point in time in a soldier's life where he retires, Either because he's moving on to some other thing or he's unable to fulfill his duties as an active soldier. And so in a sense he's been discharged. Or he's in the reserves. But when it comes time for drill, when it comes time for duty, he doesn't need to be there. He's not to present himself as a member of that unit. And verse, or the, the, the fourth section really, the fourth practical step that we can take really just flows out of three. Don't present yourselves as members to sin. Present yourselves to God. Don't do this. Do this. Last week you worked for this company. This week you worked for that company. Don't show up back at this company. You don't need to report there. Don't give them your, your body as an instrument for whatever they're doing. Present yourself to God now. So really three and four are kind of the same thing. You're either presenting your, your body as a tool of unrighteousness or you're presenting your body as a tool of righteousness. You're either an instrument of sin or you're an instrument of God. Which will it be? And for those who are in Christ, because they've considered that they are in Christ and that the promise comes to them that sin no longer has dominion over them, even if they don't feel it that day, well, they, because of those truths, they do not report for duty sin, and they do report to God. But Pastor Josh, for sin will have no dominion over you. Did you miss that point? Since you are not under the law, but under grace. Pastor Josh, I'm not under grace, or I'm not, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, Paul's not saying that the believer is free from the responsibility to keep the law's demands. We're not talking about the law of Moses, we're talking about the law of God. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying you don't have to fulfill the law of God, that you don't have to just totally disregard that. Paul's not giving us another uh, uh, statement here that can be misconstrued and supporting antinomianism. It's not what he's saying. He's making clear that the underlying principle, the thing that drives us, is not keeping the law but enjoying the grace of Jesus that allows you to be joined to him. Therefore, the law is already fulfilled in you. Instead of you trying to lift the, the law that literally crushes you, it's been lifted over your head and it's securely held there by Christ. So the law is still over us, but it's been fulfilled for us. And so we can still, we have the freedom to, and the space to abide in the law of God and to please him there and not be crushed by it. As 
I meditated on these passages this week, my mind went to John 11. I wonder if anybody sees where my mind is going. Verse 43 and 44 of John 11, the scriptures say, And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, come forth. Loose him, let him free. Just as that man Lazarus who, who died and was dressed in the fitting clothes of a dead man, so was it fitting for Jesus to command that the grave clothes be removed upon his resurrection. He mustn't wear the trappings of a dead man now that he lives. He walks in newness of life, so therefore let him dress as such. Jesus' resurrection is absolutely sure. It's a fact. And Christian, if you're in Christ, your resurrection is sure and a fact also. It's not mind over matter. It's not, oh, I'll just try really hard this week. It's not name it and claim it. That's not what it is. It's your freedom from sin is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow. Christ rose whether you believe it or not. Historical facts are outside of your realm of influence. Christian, if you're in Christ, you're free. You're a new person. And so what a picture we see in John 11. It's simple. Lazarus was doing what dead people do. He was doing what dead people do. He was doing it where dead people do it, in graves. And he was wearing what dead people wear. But the person of the resurrection called out to him. And he was reborn. Physically speaking, that is. He was made alive. And in that instant of his rebirth, of his regeneration, of his new life, he's alive. He's a living person and he's wearing the clothes of a dead man. He's acting, in a sense, for that first second, like a dead man. He's habitating like a dead man. And yet the logical conclusion for Lazarus, as he, in a sense, wakes up, as he comes to, is to see, I'm alive, and yet I'm acting like I'm dead. So Jesus' statement to him, come forth, it was natural. He wasn't dead anymore. And so he came out. And yet he's encumbered with all these other things. And, and it's just natural that he not be dressed like a dead man anymore. And so he's, those clothes are removed from him. And he's washed and he's given new clothes. Christian sin would hold you in the grave. It would keep you there. It would have you think that you are still in its bondage, still in its grasp, but you are no longer captive. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your life. It has no dominion over you. The obligation to lead a new and holy life is not a burden for the Christian. Why? It's a joy. Because we have been empowered by our union with Jesus to literally walk out of the grave. And to put on new clothes. New and holy life. Let's pray. Father, we... 
can't be anything but shocked. That you would take sinners such as we, such as I, that you would take our heart of stone, you would overlook my sinful deeds, and that you would give me new life. It's only because of your mercy that you've done these things. No work of righteousness that I've done for anybody else here. Father, we pray right now that the the one that is considering what it's like to be forgiven of their sins, one that senses the call of your spirit through the preaching of your word to turn from their sin and to receive that new life, to be reborn, Father, we pray that you'd give them the power to do these things, that they would call out to you, having received justification, having been empowered to do these things, that they would have that faith that you require. Father, we can't bring, breathe life into ourselves. Only you can do it. And so we ask that you do it now. Father, we pray that this week that you would help us to really lean into this idea that we are dead to sin and we are alive in Christ. And may we lead a new and holy life. Father, this is our prayer. We ask it of you desperately. In the name of Jesus, amen.